There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James and joining me on today's episode are Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about the New York Times acquiring The Athletic, Take-Two Interactive acquiring Zynga, and we're also going to take a look to see what's going on with Sea Limited. So guys, welcome to today's podcast. If you can believe it, this is our 100th episode of the podcast. I can't say of the Stock Club podcast because we weren't always called Stock Club. We were inventively called the Rubicoin podcast before, but this is our, our 100th episode according to Apple Apple Podcasts. So yeah, I think uh, we deserve a collective pat on the back for that. Rory, you've been here since day one, me and you. Emmett was here since day one too, but he just chose not to show up, even though he was the one that alerted us that this was the 100th podcast. Do you, do you think this shows an inherent lack of interest that Emmett has in the podcast <laughs> no I would go that far I think Emmett loves the podcast but um that's amazing 100 100 episodes can't believe it 100 episodes Seems... yeah and it's actually funnily enough it's actually pretty much four years since we started the podcast too so uh January 2018 and, and I went back and I was looking for like some interesting facts or, or things that happened in January 2018 it was actually a horrendously depressing month um <laughs> all of the news stories are just awful news stories that like the most nice or the funnest one I found was that uh, 12 camels were disqualified in a Saudi Arabian camel beauty contest for using Botox on their lips that is pretty much the the best news I could get from uh January 2018 there was also a stock market correction back then which I didn't remember oh I remember it (laughs) (laughs) I definitely remember it oh the camels and Botox story it seems like yesterday yeah do you remember I can't believe it's 100 episodes do you remember the very first time we did it and like none of us had ever recorded a podcast before. No. And you, you don't remember that or are you just agreeing with me? <laughs> never, like we, I remember, well, you and me certainly were like quite nervous about the first time going and it was like, it took us ages to record and we had to do so many edits. We had, we had uh, Giles as our producer back then. He used, to, yeah. he used to, to give some flattering cuts. Anyway, we kind of collectively decided that we were going to send the first one out only to like a small cadre of of hardcore rubicon users to get feedback and literally about 20 minutes later emma had posted on his twitter account (laughs) giving it out to the world telling everyone about it yeah (laughs) i did i actually completely forgot about that yeah so uh i suppose uh, actually also i just want to point out the balls on us releasing a a stock club podcast in the middle of a a stock market correction Uh, we really must have felt that we were what the world needed to calm everything down at, at that time so Rory, I'm curious. I'm going to come to you in a moment, Henry, but Rory, I'm curious. It might be a hard question to ask, but what was your favourite recording of the podcast so far? Is there any episodes or recording sessions that stand out in particular to you? I mean, the end of the year ones are always good crack because I think we, 
we like just you know don't take them that seriously and just have a bit of fun whatever there's been ones where like i've fallen over in laughter recording them and i've actually like gone back and listened back to them several times to give myself a bit of a cheering up some um, <laughs> the one where emma talked about a chicken looking into a welly is how he described himself yeah. <laughs> in terms of his knowledge about something or the story about they're all kind of revolving around emma's stories actually it's a shame he's not here the one about him wrestling a pig yeah uh, <laughs> we must get kind of like kind of blooper reel going at some point yeah i, I think our, our our one of our recent producers luke actually did have a, a blooper reel go ahead going around one point point. and marie i know you haven't been on the podcast that long but any favorite episodes any episodes stand out to you in particular me and Emma did an episode not that long ago where we were talking about like our favorite Christmas presents ever and we got a bit off topic and we were just a bit meandering for about 25 <laughs> I, or 30 I minutes. Don't, I don't believe it. Yeah, yeah and then we just doesn't sound like Emma's. Yeah, and then we just put it out and there was maybe no investing advice in it. We were just like, there you go. You can have that now. <laughs> There you go now. That's just what we do now. Yeah, well, look, 100 episodes. Hopefully there'll be a, a couple of hundred more if we if we manage to stick each other for another few years. Let's get on to actual investing news and not just talk about presents or whatever it is you and Emma talk about, Anne-Marie. So we actually have a bit of an acquisition theme on this week's episode. So the first story I want to get to is the news that the New York Times is set to buy the sports website, The Athletic, in a deal worth about $550 million. I'm sure most people know what The New York Times is. The 170-year-old company is like pretty much an American cultural icon. It's more recently made a name for itself as one of the few old school newspapers to successfully pivot to the digital landscape. The Athletic, on the other hand, is a little more recent to the scene. It was founded back in 2015. It went through Y Combinator with a focus on providing in-depth, long-form sports coverage for die-hard fans. The Athletic has expanded really rapidly since then, snapping up renowned sports writers and currently has an audience of about 1.2 million subscribers, which is pretty impressive. And Ray, I'm going to come to you first on this story. We all know about the New York Times and their move to digital over the last few years is the purse is this purchase of the athletic just another piece in that kind of bigger puzzle for them yeah i think this move really fits the kind of new york times's recent behavior and really the whole industries i think print media companies would appear to be following in the footsteps of streaming services and have initiated a pretty significant wave of consolidation and buying up of competitors it's clear to me that they realized in order to have an edge and justify their subscription price to new readers they have to diversify their offerings which ensures they capture both a niche audience and then people who want a little bit of everything. This move also aligns pretty perfectly with CEO Meredith Levine's famous business model for the Times, um, which she kind of says quite often publicly, that they want to make something worth paying for. So bringing on The Athletic, I think, fills a really nice kind of gap that The New York Times had for a while. It's not exactly known as a place that covers sports. And really, the acquisition of The Athletic comes on the back of The Times acquisition of Wirecutter in 2016, Autumn in 2020, and then the podcast production company Serial. But more broadly within the industry, we've seen Axel Spring acquire Politico, we've seen BuzzFeed take complex media and the merger of digital publishers, Vox Media and Group 9 Media. Yeah. I think overall it's going to give the New York Times really nice access to a group that they probably haven't been able to gain access to so far in the United States. As you previously mentioned, The Athletic has about 1.2 million subscribers and a valuation of about 500 million. And that's only five years into the company's life. That's pretty good considering The New York Times currently has about 8 million subscribers across their various digital channels. So I think it's a great cross-selling and probably upselling opportunity for current New York Times subscribers and then traditional Athletic subscribers. Yeah, I think it's a great 
great move by the yeah. newspaper overall. Absolutely. And then just like to come to the athletic, to me, the athletic seems like a bit of an outlier in terms of sports journalism. You know, usually when you're reading about sports, you're looking for results. It's kind of short form advertising driven pieces, whereas, you know, the athletic has long form pieces. Customers pay a subscription fee. How does this work for the athletic? How have they managed to get 1.2 million subscribers off the back of this approach? Yeah, the athletic is a really interesting media company to look at because it's a big national brand with a very local focus that has allowed them to flourish. I would say, in the face of a general decline in journalism, particularly Mm. in the United States. Media in general is pretty much split between a national and a local focus, but I would argue that is never more prevalent than in sports. Uh, There are 32 teams in the NFL, for example, and that's very difficult for a national newspaper to cover all of them in a level of detail that probably would be sufficient for a diehard fan. You know, if if you're the New York Times and you're trying to cover just 32 teams of of football teams and you, you know, want an analysis on one individual player, that's a lot of people. People to try and cover that's a lot of manpower there's a lot of journalists not to mention like college and community college and even high school teams can sometimes be incredibly popular in smaller towns and cities in the united states i think we see that a lot in the south where you can go to communities in texas and mississippi and alabama and people are not interested in national sports they want to talk about you know alabama roll tide or mississippi or texas tech yeah. um and so the way the athletic has kind of solved this problem and has allowed itself to both fulfill the needs of someone who wants you know an overarching view of the nfl but then also very specific statistics about, you know, the University of Colorado Boulder football team or the Denver Broncos is that they basically built out local journalism teams in all of the major kind of sports cities. And they did this by waiting until local newspapers collapsed, essentially. And then they scooped up all of the local sports talent and then just maintained those hubs. And so then those people who, you know, have been writing about the Dallas Cowboys for 25 years continue to write detailed pieces about the Dallas Cowboys that diehard fans of the Dallas Cowboys probably love. But now they're just publishing it to The Athletic. And And so 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 in a way, have have The Athletic kind of grabbed audience share by bringing in top talent and you know these these writers are, are bringing their readers with them yeah most definitely and it means that we can get long form quality articles about dozens of teams and that means that maybe there's only 200,000 fans of Chicago Bear of the Chicago Bears who would be willing to pay a subscription but then those 200,000 fans can combine for with 200,000 fans from Denver and 300,000 mm. fans from Los Angeles and all together they are willing to buy a subscription fee which makes the athletics model viable yeah, and you mentioned the, the the kind of the local aspect of sports journalism, which is quite interesting. And for, you know, a company like the New York Times, which is obviously much more of a national focus, how do you think that fits in? Do you think national newspapers are becoming more interested in this local coverage? How do you think it will impact the wider New York Times company? I think it does. If we've learned anything from video streaming and social media algorithms, it's that users want a customized experience and they want a large player to be able to cater to them. And it would appear right now that the New York Times is trying to be that player by acquiring up this diverse number of providers. It's a little bit different, though, than streaming because studies have shown that most consumers will only pay for one print media subscription. And right now it's looking like the New York Times is probably the best bet or deal for most people. I would maybe say that the issue for that, maybe not necessarily for New York Times readers, but maybe more broad kind of readers across the United States is that this might accelerate the destruction of local newspapers and local news coverage within the United States, which is already something that is happening. And we've seen probably the last 20 to 30 years. And so it might mean that some local issues are going to will go uncovered or unaudited, which could present, you know, issues in any number of things in politics and social issues and economic issues. So while I think this move is great for the New York Times and is a great signal for investors who own their stock, maybe from a consumer point of view it's it's time to 
maybe take some of those earnings and buy subscription to your local paper as well. Yeah, interesting. Good point. Rory, we actually added New York Times to my Wall Street shortlist not that long ago. What's your perception on this acquisition? Does it change the underlying thesis we had for the New York Times in any way? No, not at all. In fact, I don't actually know. I didn't write it in the actual comment, but usually we do do kind of in-house pitch for the My Wall Street staff when we had a new company. And I noted in that pitch that The Athletic was the exact kind of business that I thought The New York Times would end up acquiring. And now that's not because I'm some sort of oracle. They'd actually kind of made the offer to The Athletic previously and it hadn't worked out. So I'm not surprised at all that this deal eventually did go ahead, particularly as I'm sure the pandemic and the cancellation of almost all live sporting events in 2020 didn't do much for the Alexa income statement. But the, st- the I mean, the story very much revolves around one of my favorite topics, which is this move from what I would consider a transactional model in terms of commerce to a subscription model. You know, humans are pretty habitual creatures. Pretty much every morning or every weekday, at least I walk down the road and buy a coffee from a lad called Michael. And it's such a regular ritual that Michael doesn't even ask me what I want anymore. I've been, you know, we often talk of kind of user acquisition in terms of software, but you know, it happens all the time in real life. I've been yeah. acquired by Michael. There's about five different coffee shops within three minutes walk of Michael's shop. I've tasted them all. I've landed on his in terms of the quality of the product that, and this. That's a strange <laughs> sentence. I've been acquired by Michael. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I mean, Michael's what, Michael is what I, uh, someone would call a regular, you know? And yeah. That's the kind of th- term that's thrown around a lot. But what it actually means is that to someone like Michael, I'm a high quality customer. You're contributing um, to Michael. Michael's ARPU. <laughs> I definitely am. I think most people listening will have had that experience at some point in their lives as like mutually beneficial experience that comes to fruition after a period of time between kind of a merchant and their high quality customers. It's like, you know, it can be something as minor as kind of a nod of recognition when you walk through the door. But businesses like high quality customers in an age of the internet where there's so much of what you're looking for being acquired for free through that kind of advertising model, there is a kind of cadre of customers who are willing to pay up for a premium service. And, you know, in a subscription world, you know, you really trying to look at where can you acquire those customers where can we get the the subscription business is all about quality over quantity that is how subscriptions work and it it works both ways it's both it's in terms of both the content being delivered and the kind of customers that you're bringing in because you want people there that are going to continue to pay you for what they're after in a subscription world you know you look at something like amazon prime for example is the greatest subscription model ever built you're essentially paying a monthly fee in order to enter a monogamous relationship with amazon but netflix <laughs> has done it as well in terms of like they've brilliantly removed advertising to the point where children these days cry when an advert comes on because they're so you know they're so unused to the idea of seeing adverts when they're watching their shows the, the new york times has gone out on a mission to kind of find this type of customer who's willing to pay up for high quality content which has always been their MO, really, if you consider that they used to pay off for, well, they still do pay off for top quality journalists in order to fuel readership. But in a digital age, you're trying to figure that balance of what people are looking for and what they're willing to subscribe to. And in the past, you know, the New York Times have tried and failed in the past when doing this. At one point, they acquired the Boston Globe and that didn't work out very well. But what they were doing there was acquiring high quality customers who were both looking for the same thing. Whereas yeah. here, what they've got is they're acquired, they've, they know the New York Times that they have uh, a couple of million people who are willing to pay up for their news content what they haven't been able to really hit on is their sports content and this is a kind of marriage that works quite well i think and it's it's you know the athletic is what the new york times sports page should have been for the last 10 years and it hasn't yeah my the the worry i would have as as a as an athletic subscriber is i hope they don't go down the route of well we know how to make this profitable which is 
removing content you know yeah. I, I hope they invest in that content and continue it being strong i hope they don't go down the route of well we don't need x men many journalists following man united one will do you know yeah absolutely definitely one of the more interesting acquisitions i've seen recently and on to the next piece of acquisition news it's another company on our shortlist doing the acquiring take two interactive set to acquire the game developer zynga for a whopping 12.7 billion dollars take two is well known for blockbuster video games like red dead redemption and grand theft auto whereas zynga on the other hand is a developer that focused more closely on social and mobile gaming probably its most notable success is Farmville the game on Facebook which I think everyone played about I think it was probably 10 years ago everyone was a bit obsessed with Farmville Rory I'm going to come to you first on this why is such an iconic and I suppose like AAA rated games developer like Take-Two spending you know close to 70% of its current value on a mobile gaming company like Zynga I'd never, I'd never really thought of it in terms of the percentage value of the market cap change. there. Um, <laughs> fair enough. Well, okay, let's take Take Two for a, for it, for an example. For all the successes they've had in terms of their hit titles, Take Two's never been a business that's managed to crack mobile gaming. And this is something we see really across the across the board in the gaming world, you know, when you consider mobile game for a moment, it's not just the idea of taking a game and moving it onto a mobile platform. There's actually far more to it than that. It's kind of about, it's much more about understanding the dynamics of kind of grabbing someone's attention at a particular point in time, getting them to kind of habitually use your product. And then there's also this kind of balance in terms of advertising versus user experience. And this is something that, you know, a console gamer, PC gamer, a company like Take-Two just wouldn't have any expertise in doing. It's just, they've never really had to think about this. Zynga, on the other hand, and the entire company's built on this. This is this is their bread and butter. And I think like the, the immediate reaction some investors might have to this is that, you know, take two imagine a scenario in which Singa sort of moves their highly successful console and PC games onto a mobile format. And that's kind of probably in my mind anyway, kind of somewhat tempered by the fact that Activision Blizzard sold their very expensive acquisition of King Digital a couple of years ago on that story, and that never really materialized. It's I think some you know, some things just don't work on mobile. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's just the way it's going to be but you know Zynga has kind of in the last kind of two years really undergone a real turnaround of the quite successful turnaround actually I mean I, I kind of only really started looking at them after I heard this news and wasn't really on my radar but reading back they kind of moved into this kind of acquisition mode where what they did was they went and they found successful companies the successful studios that had developed games that people were playing a lot and just bought them and kind of just let them keep to injected a lot of fuel in, in terms of capital into the business but kind of just let them do their thing didn't mm. really kind of a warren buffett-esque kind of approach <laughs> you know they were just like here you've got something good there keep doing what you're doing we're just going to give you money to plow advertising dollars in and get more users and that's kind of worked out very well for them and so i think i mean this this acquisition is kind of take two almost doing that as well yeah i mean they're kind of like i don't really know if they're going to seize the ship and be like right we're doing it the take two way i think really what they're going to do is like you guys have figured out mobile keep doing that and you know we'll try and figure out some kind of synergies through over the course of the next couple of years in terms of cost reduction things like that but mobile gaming really seems to be the next frontier in gaming you know according to newzu the global gaming market brought in over 180 billion in revenue last year and just over half of that was mobile gaming revenue you know is is the future going mobile? Are we going to see the end of these kind of AAA rated 
your really high quality production console gaming is that maybe a direction that take two is thinking of taking uh, no i don't I, I definitely don't think we're going to see the end of the triple a games because there always will be you know it's it's that balance again of the hardcore and the casual let's say you know people who really love their gaming and people who are like Do you know what i'm on a tube for the next 20 minutes i want something to distract myself obviously i mean in the world of mobile advertising and and you know the mobile phone is a very perceptive piece of technology it's literally there with you all the time you can you know you can manipulate people to do pretty much anything you want with a mobile phone in their hands so mobile gaming is obviously very good in terms of advertising revenue in terms of the kind of perk you know the the this microtransactions things like that because it's so instantaneous whereas people who are going to invest in let's say a ps5 or a high quality um, pc yeah they're looking for something completely different so there will always be a balance but you can totally see where that kind of volume or the sorry we're going back to the new york times thing here now but the qual <laughs> the quantity versus quality balance becomes askew when you suddenly have you know 10 years as before and not everyone had a computer in their pocket and everyone does so there is obviously going to be that growth there in the digital gaming space but i think you know what was what was interesting about the zynga acquisition is i think there was an instant reaction largely due to the kind of premium that was being paid you know 64 percent higher than the the closing price last friday however that's still 20 percent low than the heights that the company has reached in the last 52 weeks so we could put that you know the, the it kind of the stock price fell off a cliff a little bit recently we could put that down to a general sell-off in technology companies but i actually think it's probably a little bit deserved because zynga was very much based around the kind of mobile advertising space and as we know apple has come in and yeah. wrecked everyone's fun in that respect so i mean the, there's a kind of sense of well what is take has take two kind of figured that they as a bigger company can weather this storm and and get through or figure out at least a new a new rea a new kind of reality in terms of mobile gaming uh, and if they can i think it's going to be quite a good acquisition yeah what what about you and maria i'm interested in your thoughts on this were you ever a farm villar not really i didn't i didn't i don't think i had a facebook page until i was like until I moved here, because by the time I was like in high school, people weren't really using Facebook, so there was no point in. Also, also, also in, Ar in Ireland, are just so backwards. We're also on Facebook. <laughs> uh, no, it's just you guys use it for messaging, which we don't in the United States. Everyone uses iMessage. Like I would yeah. have everyone's phone numbers, and you guys don't. It was crazy when I came over here. But anyway, I think it is interesting to see the kind of rise of the casual mobile game. Think about like Among Us or even like Fortnite Mobile. Like those games are not very sophisticated in terms of plot or even in terms of look. Like Among Us pretty much looks like it's hand-drawn and it's incredible to see that game be so successful and so uh, it's probably a really nice balancing act for take two to have these games that will sit in development for gosh like seven or eight years yeah i mean like red dead redemption 2 didn't that it took something like eight years for them to develop that game and then at the same time be having this other unit of games that are just kind of producing ones that probably don't need as much investment up front and can be released much faster and can kind of take advantage probably of virality and be very popular for a year a year and a half and then fade away whereas i think investing in the content of something like grand theft auto has paid huge dividends that game is incredibly popular yeah. even now and it came out in what 2010 like that's yeah. incredible yeah so it's a nice kind of balancing act for their business yeah. model just on that grand theft auto point i was i was doing some research for an article earlier and it's made 
the Grand Theft Auto game. I think it came out in 2013, so it's coming up on a decade and it made has made $6 billion for the company since it was launched. And it still has about just over 2 million monthly active users on its online platform. So, you know, even a decade afterwards, it still has that level of engagement. But yeah, look, another, another very, very interesting acquisition. Definitely one we'll be keeping our eye on. So let's talk about some of the things going on in my Wall Street at the moment. So we've our latest Stock of the Month report and our exclusive Stock of the Month podcast live in the app at the moment. We're also adding a new stock to the shortlist next week Rory Henry I don't know which of you guys are picking it but can either of you or one of you give me a clue as to what it is you're both pointing at each other so I'm a little bit worried we're not gonna have a new stock next week <laughs> no that was it was me pointing that my hand <laughs> yeah it's uh, I'm adding a uh, clue let me think of a clue it's a company we've discussed on this show many times before okay there you go. That's not not a great clue, but <laughs> we'll we'll go with it. So keep an eye out on the My Wall Street app for that. It's coming in on Monday. Let's go to mailbag. This week's mailbag, we're taking a question that came in to us on Twitter by Mike Torduff. Thanks for the question, Mike. He asks us to explain what's going on with C Limited at the moment. So C Limited is a stock on our shortlist, and last week its stock price dropped heavily based on some news regarding it and Tencent. And Marie, what's well, maybe what do you want to give a quick ex- explanation of what C Limited is? And, and what's going on with the company at the moment that's causing such volatility? Yeah, Sea Limited is a very interesting company. They kind of are across a couple different things. As we've previously talked about mobile gaming, they are a huge mobile game developer in Southeast Asia, but they also run a very successful e-commerce division known as Shopee. And then their kind of most recent initiative is Sea Money, which would be similar to like a Revolut in Ireland or the UK, or maybe um, PayPal or the Cash App in the United States. They do things like payment processing, buy now, pay later, mobile wallets, that type of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, very diversified company. It's been, they're based out of uh, Southeast Asia, but they quite recently moved into Latin America and have seen quite good success there. So it's a nice kind of international diversification play for those people out there. Yeah. So what's go- what's going on with C Limited at the moment? Then what what caused a big drop in its stock price? Yeah, so Chinese internet giant Tencent, quite famous, uh, announced it was selling $3 billion worth of its investment in C-Limited, reducing its ownership by 3%. And that, like, $3 billion probably looks pretty staggering to most people, but Tencent actually used to own 21% of C-Limited, and now it only owns 18%, so it is actually just a portion of their investment. And the reason that Tencent gave when they were asked about this is that it provides them with an opportunity to move resources to fund other investment and social initiatives. So it doesn't appear to to be them worried about C-Limited in any way. They just seem to want to free up capital and probably cash in a bit on the success that C-Limited has had um, yeah. for the last couple of years. I really wouldn't be worried about it at, um, all that much. C-Limited still has some pretty tremendous signs of life. For example, Free Fire, which is their self-developed mobile game, has been the highest grossing mobile app for nine consecutive quarters in Southeast Asia and Latin America and for the last four consecutive quarters in India. So I still think they're doing all right. Yeah, Rory, that kind of reminds me, we, we talk about it quite a lot about the importance we place on insider buying and the relative unimportance of insider selling. Can we apply that kind of framework to, to companies and, and larger investment vehicles investing in, in, in smaller companies like that? I mean, it's, it's very kind of case by case basis. I think, you know, for Tencent in particular, you know, we have heard that the Chinese government is kind of clocked pushing down on kind of tech companies in a lot of ways there could be an element of them not wanting to look too monopolistic uh, yeah. around, around that part portion of the the globe whereas if you have you know shamath selling all the shares of, of a company six months after promoting it to everyone that's kind of more of a red flag <laughs> yeah than, than what tencent is doing 
Okay, yeah. so so no case real worries case. about this. It's case case by case. I wouldn't really have any worries about this particular okay. move. Good to hear. So let's move on to this week's elevator pitch then to finish out today's show. So because it's our 100th episode, I've asked you guys to pick 100 companies that you're... No, I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I, I thought your Zooms were going to drop there suddenly. So let's go back to an old classic for today. I just want you guys to pitch me a stock you're researching at the minute and tell me what it is that excites you or maybe doesn't excite you about this company. Rory, I'll go to you first. Yeah, I have a quite a strange one on my radar this week. It's John Deere or Deer and Co, as they're known to investors. You probably know my ears cute. pricking up <laughs> as a as a culty. <laughs> as a country boy, James. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a company that's nearly two hundred years old, which I think uh, might be wrong. Could be the oldest company listed on the stock market. Maybe not in terms of when it was listed, but in terms of when it was founded. Um, $100 billion, $120 billion market cap shares have more than doubled since the pandemic hit. But I mean, if you look out, look at it over the course of any kind of space and time, 5, 10, 20, 20 years, it's, it's been a consistent market beater. The reason I've become instantly interested in it is that just at CSS a few a week ago, they announced an autonomous tractor. So a self-driving tractor. And now for my very limited knowledge of farming, <laughs> I'm struggling in my head to figure out what would be a greater net gain to the world of human endeavor than an autonomous tractor. And, and this is, by the way, this isn't just like, they haven't just got a tractor and stuck a couple of sensors on it. They've been developing this apparently for close to five years. They've kind of got it almost ready to ship. It's not entirely autonomous in the fact that there's a kind of customer support network where they you know if something goes wrong if a, if a you know something jumps in front of the tractor or something there'll be someone there who's monitoring and go oh better stop that tractor before all hell breaks loose but essentially like as a farmer you can just kind of set it off let it do its thing i think it's brilliant yeah interesting <laughs> I, I i don't think i would have ever predicted you pitching me john the here so <laughs> no. you, you really saved a nice one for the 100th episode thanks for that <laughs> Anne Marie, what about you? Any tractors on your uh, on your uh, research list at the minute? No, I'm wondering how long it'll take for John Deere to launch one into space, though. I think that'll <laughs> yeah. that'll be <laughs> that's that's the mark of a great company. Um, when are you gonna have like special John Deere parking spots <laughs> in like the trendy shopping markets in LA? <laughs> God, it'll be very frustrating when you're driving down a country road and the tractor driving in front of you is completely autonomous and there's not even a person in it that you can yell at. Yeah, beep and yell at. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I decided to go with a very small company I'm having a look at, a $900 million market cap. It's called Latch, L-T-C-H. Um, it's backed back in March of last year, which I know we're all very disappointed in, but it's very interesting. It's a unified full building operating system, which produces both hardware and software. It's targeted at kind of new developments of offices and apartments and then existing buildings that would have a management company. We'd be talking kind of more upscale stuff that would be common in American cities, European cities. They have a bunch of stuff, stuff like smart locks, security systems, smart home devices like thermostats, lighting, and curtains, which are all managed on one centralized platform um, with the goal of increasing security and efficiency within buildings while reducing labor needs. So for example, you get locked out of your apartment one day, they could remotely unlock your apartment for you. You just have to call your super. It's an interesting company. I'm a little bit worried about things like this because it's a little bit apocalyptic because I'm like, can someone hack into your entire home? So I need to kind of take some yeah. time and have a look at like reviews of the products and that sort of thing. But 
In terms of growth, it's an interesting company because it has a recurring revenue model. So they make between 8 and $12 per apartment per month. That being said, very small. In their latest quarter, their revenue grew by 143% to $6.6 million, which is very tiny. Wow. But they have a lot of future bookings. So their last quarter, bookings grew by 89% year over year to $71.7 million. And a booking is any contract they've signed that will be fulfilled in the next 12 to 24 months. So that revenue is coming down the line. Yeah, it's an interesting company, one that's definitely riding the wave of new developments in the United States, but I don't know yet. I'm a little bit scared of it. Yeah, the apocalyptic undertones uh, are a bit of a downer. I was reminded there is of, I don't know if you guys remember that like really old Simpsons episode. It was, I think it was on the Treehouse of Horror ones and like they had a smart house, but the house was voiced by Pierce Brosnan (laughs) and like the house turns against him and like I think it it tries to kill Homer. So um, why did you go for the the reference and not the original (laughs) from 2001 Space Odyssey? Because the Simpsons do everything better. (laughs) All of my cultural reference points came through the Simpsons at some point <laughs> and i definitely saw the simpsons before i saw that that movie so uh yeah that's just uh that's just the way we are so that's it for today's show our 100th episode remember if any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle make sure to get in touch you can find us on twitter that's at my wall street hq on tiktok that's at my wall street or just simply email us at pod at my wall street.com if you're enjoying the show don't forget to tell your friends about us and please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on thanks for joining us here today we'll talk to you next week my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then tap to pay on iphone and stripe came along and changed everything with tap to pay on iphone and stripe i streamlined my payment process effortlessly now i can accept in-person contactless payments right from my iphone No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.